Okay, if you haven't already, turn back to Matthew and into chapter 8 today and a whole chunk of verses today. Perhaps it'll become clear as, as to why they kind of fit together. Matthew chapter 8, 1 to 17. The Sermon on the Mount has concluded. Jesus came down out of the hills where the Sermon on the Mount had been delivered, and still the great crowds followed after him. And and on to a new section in the Gospel according to Matthew. Now in chapters 8 and 9, we have a collection of miracle stories. Nine, some say ten, nine miracles, the first three of which uh, we're covering today. Um, All of which display now his authority, not in teaching, but over creation, sickness, disease from this same period of his earthly ministry. This is Matthew making good on the promise he made at the end of chapter 4 where we were told, quote, right before the Sermon on the Mount, we were told, quote, and Jesus went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And then we had that Sermon on the Mount, many weeks in there, chapters 5 through 7. And now this grouping of miracles to demonstrate the other part of that, the works, the, the miracles, the deeds. Starting with this first group of miracles today, we have the healing of a man who had leprosy. That's the first one. The second, the healing of the servant of a Roman soldier, a centurion. And three, the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. Mother-in-law. Oh, yes, Peter was married. Peter's mother-in-law, who was sick with a fever. The last account adds that many more were healed at this time, so Matthew is selecting a few, starting with these three, to make some, some key points. Matthew tells the stories much more briefly than Mark, leaving out most of the kind of picturesque detail, and focusing in on Jesus himself. The emphasis is on Jesus' power, and maybe all the more, his authority. All this complements the authority which he's already demonstrated in his teaching and his preaching. We're being shown that Jesus is the one, the promised divine deliverer, the Messiah, the Son of God, God Himself, come to save His people from all of the consequences of sin and their sin. It's in these kinds of texts where it is nearly enough to simply, to simply watch. It's, it's fun to preach these narratives even, just to, just to kind of say, here, look at Him. To simply watch Jesus act here performing miracles, but we need to work out the truths to make sure we see what we are supposed to see. So let's ask the Lord's blessing before we read the text, and then we'll, and then we'll get going. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. We, we, we know that we are of those who, having not seen Him, 
and yet believed. Many, many of us, that's true, and we pray for more and more to come to, to belief. But, but we, have, we have this better witness, but it's words, not sight. And so we pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts all the more as we look at these words, but that we would see Jesus, that we would see Him and wonder, and, and for some come to Him anew, but, but for some who believe already by your grace to just be captivated again by, by Him as He acts and his, his power, His authority and who He is, and just be assured in this. So teach us, guide us, challenge us, uh, stretch us in our, in our understanding to embrace more of what you've presented Him to be as who He is, that we would love it and, um, and uh, worship you all the more for this mighty Savior, for sending Him for us. So help us now. As we look into your word, guard us from error as well, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read. It's a chunk, uh, three sections. It's divided up by, you know, into those three uh, miracles, essentially. Matthew 8, 1. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold... A leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy, his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. The holy and inerrant word of God. 
Okay, so three points today, three points today, and wouldn't you know it, broken up into these three, these three miracle accounts. Number one, a man with leprosy, verses one to four. A man with leprosy. In the ancient world, as you may know, leprosy was the most terrible of diseases. No medical treatment caused the, the disease caused the body to rot away, leading to what was widely known to be an inevitable death. Most people considered living lepers virtually dead already and were treated as such. That's the social implication, many social implications, in fact. It separated the victim from other human beings since he or she had to go out, uh, go about and out calling unclean, unclean. Some say they would ring a bell or were forced to ring a bell so no, no one would come near them. No one dared to touch a leper. Lepers were not allowed to share in the services of the synagogue or worship at the temple in Jerusalem. In fact, Lepers were barred from Jerusalem proper as from all walled communities. The commentator Barclay supplies many of these facts about lepers, which we rehearse, those of us who preach and teach uh, uh, about lepers and leprosy. He says, quote, There never has been any disease which so separated a man from his fellow men as leprosy did, end quote, although he wrote that before what we did with COVID, so I don't know. I'm not, sure. I'm not sure if that's true anymore. But anyways, it might be worth saying that it wasn't the disease that separated people from people. It was people who separated people from people because of their fear of leprosy and well-founded, it seems, in the case of leprosy. So separated from other human beings, yes, but of course not separated from God. Here in this first of the miracle stories in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus not only heals the leper, but does so by reaching out and touching the leper as no one in that day would have done, as we've just covered. Verse 3 says again, And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched the leper. Touched him. He's a man. He touched the man. Saying, I... I do will it. Be clean, as he's touching him. This was so striking an action that in all their differences in the way they recorded the miracles, Matthew, Mark, and Luke each include that part, that he touches him physically. So what's the point of this miracle? Well, we need to remember that for the Jews, leprosy rendered a person spiritually unclean and therefore cursed by God. The reason the law did not allow a person to touch a leper was not only because leprosy was thought to, sp to spread by contact, physical contact, but also because the touch made the one who touched the leper unclean and therefore cursed by God also. But when Jesus touched the leper, his touch, rather than contaminating Jesus, cured the leper, you see. It is a spectacular demonstration of what Jesus' coming does in respect to human sin. Jesus did not become sinful by becoming one of us. Rather, he made it possible for us to be cleansed from sin by his coming near to us. 
We'll talk about the connection of sickness and sin towards the, the end, but Matthew's already showing us in picture or what's being pictured or the, the broader uh, picture of what's happening even in the, even in the story of touching the leper. And, and why did Matthew put this miracle first here in this series of miracles? That answer is that Jesus himself understood the healing of leprosy to be a mark of the dawning of the messianic age. It provides a, start, a, a startling and powerful instance of Jesus' authority at work. This is God, God's representative, God's Messiah, the second person of the Trinity come in the flesh. He is here. And here's how Jesus explains that to the followers of John the Baptist when John was wondering if Jesus was him, the, the Messiah. Kind of wondering, is it you? Kind of maybe waffling a little bit. In Matthew 11, we read Jesus' response. Quote, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, lepers, lepers, lepers are cleansed. Go tell John, lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Go tell John, the Messiah is here. Let's take one last pass at the miracle itself here before we have to move on, even though we aren't covering every detail in each of these miracle stories, but I want to point out something about the words of the leper to Jesus in verses 2 and 3 again. Look there. Let's read them. It's been a few minutes. Look at the text. Look there, verses 2 and 3. And behold, a leper came to Jesus and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, if you want it, if you will it, you can you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I do will it. Be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. So that exchange, just take note, does not call into question in any way or on anyone's part Jesus' general willingness to do good, as if he has to be coerced into kindness. He does not. Rather, both the leper's statement and Jesus' response to it frankly, just frankly recognize that Jesus already has the power and authority to do the healing. You can make me clean. I know it, you know it. He can heal the man. The only thing in question is if it's God's will to do it in this instance. If it's Jesus' will to do it in this instance. That's the only thing in question. His ability, his authority is presupposed here in the conversation. In this passage then, the healing of the leper turns on Jesus' will and nothing else. I will, he says, or I am willing. I am willing. And the matter settled. 
He doesn't have to turn to anybody. He doesn't have to talk to anybody else. He doesn't have to do any sort of like conjuring up or chanting or incantation or grab his special rock or, or, or whatever. It, it's settled. The authority is already his. He doesn't actually even have to touch the man, as the next miracle will show. He needs only to will it, to want it, and it's done. Don't ever think that the question is about whether Jesus can do something, which would be something that would be consistent with health and peace and restoration and revival. Don't ever think about whether Jesus, don't ever think the issue is whether Jesus can do it. Don't ever think that the question is about whether God has the power to fix this or heal that or restore that relationship or church or nation. That's not the question ever. The question is whether or not it is His will to do it. Which is why the apostles and Christians throughout the ages and we today conclude each prayer of request for such things with words like this, if it be your will, your will be done. Not my will, but yours be done. And the like. Those aren't empty phrases, at least they best not become that. And so we must come with the same spirit and even words as this leper. We know you can do it. It's just a matter of whether it's your will, God, and we rest in that. Whether you want to heal or not, whether it's in your plan, what's best for me or us or this thing or this country or whatever, we rest in whatever your answer is. But we know you can do all things. Your will be done. We must recognize and confess the unlimited sweep and absolute meticulous nature of Jesus' authority in and over and through all things. We must recognize God's authority and power in its totality and absoluteness and petition Him for grace that He would display it to our benefit in this current request. And then we must acknowledge His right, His freedom, His will, His sovereign plan and rest in whatever answer is given. His ways are not our ways. Here He healed the leper. He does not always heal, does He? But His sovereign authority, the absoluteness of His sovereign will worked out providentially in and over and through all things is never in question in God's Word and must never be questioned amongst God's people. Never to be questioned. It is assumed, just like with the leper. Just like with the leper. You can make me clean. Your will be done, Jesus. He's, he's kneeling before Him. Whatever, whatever, whatever. I trust you. The second miracle account, the second event, a centurion's servant, this is point two then, verses 5 to 13, a centurion's, 
You can say centurion if you want. That's all right. I don't know why I'm saying centurion today. I don't remember how I used to say it or will say it 10 years from now. I don't know. It's one of those words. But I'm going with centurion today. (laughs) It surprises you sometimes because you read it all week long, and I didn't actually say it out loud anytime all week, and here I'm surprising myself by how I'm pronouncing it. So I don't remember how I have ever said it differently, but we're going with centurion today, centurion. The second miracle, another story of healing, but it adds a couple elements uh, that the first one doesn't have. First, uh, it's about a Roman centurion, which means it's about a Gentile. It's about a Gentile, a non-Jew. Verses 5 and 6, look there with me. Uh, Jesus is entering Capernaum, and as he does so, a centurion waiting for him comes forward to him, uh, waiting to appeal to Jesus, and he says, Lord, 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 Gentile, a Gentile, a a high-ranking powerful man, and a Gentile. Lord, he says to Jesus, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. We don't know how far, but he's not nearby. At least, you know, walking distance in a minute or two. He's somewhere else at home. All of this indicates that the gospel Jesus was preaching Matthew's reminding us, is for the entire world and not for Jewish people only. We've already noticed this as a recurring emphasis in Matthew, even though Matthew is the most Jewish of the Gospels. But it begins with the Gentile wise men, the Magi, coming to Jesus, and it ends with the command to go and make disciples of all nations. That's Matthew's Gospel. And here a Gentile approaches Jesus in Capernaum, calling him Lord and exercising great faith, Jesus will say. More than anyone he'd seen in in Israel. Well, Jesus presses the point home even further within this second miracle story by adding that unexpected teaching about the heavenly banquet to be held at the end of the age. So so look at 11 and 12. We'll come back to the the miracle itself, but but look at this this, uh, Gentileness aspect of the story in verses 11 and 12 where Jesus teaches. I think unexpectedly he says, I tell you, many will come from east and west, those are Gentiles, and recline at table with the sons of the faith, right? Abraham, the fathers of the faith, Abraham-like faith. They'll sit at table, these Gentiles, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom, who's that? The sons by flesh, the Jewish people. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. Not all of them, because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are Jews, Israelites by birth. But many sons of the kingdom who assume they're in will be thrown out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, there's eternal judgment. Gentiles. Jesus is teaching that Gentiles will sit down with Jews at the Messianic banquet, Revelation 19. That is, Gentiles, many from east and west and north and south, will be saved from every nation and tribe and tongue, while many of the 
privileged children of the kingdom, the Jews will perish in their rejection of the Messiah. And in the second miracle story, we also want to take note that Jesus does the healing on account of or in consistency with the centurion's faith, which very much has to do with the man's acknowledgement of and assumptions about Jesus' authority as he describes it. The, the centurion making much about how he's himself a man under authority and has men under him. Verses 6 and 7 read again, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And Jesus says, okay, I'll come. Interestingly, he, he's willing to come. He's, he's, he's going to leave whatever he's doing and, and, and he's going to go to the centurion's house and heal this, this young servant. But the response is is the interesting thing here. Instead of merely saying, oh, oh, thank you, please come this way, and, and waiting for Jesus to come and perform the healing, he replies this way, verses 8 and 9. Look there again. He says, oh, Lord, I, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. He's got some sense of, of who he's talking to and of his unworthiness. And he says, but only say the word. Listen to his, his understanding and his faith in the fact that Jesus has this kind of power. Only say the word from a distance, from right here where we stand. And I know my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority. Uh, Caesar, various layers of a, in, in, in him with soldiers under me, and then there's men under him. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Okay, so we're told then that Jesus was so impressed with this answer that he observed he had not found any person in Israel with such faith as this Gentile soldier. Why did he speak about authority in just that way? The commentator Carson, Don Carson, one of my favorite dudes, explains the man's thinking like this, quote, All authority belonged to the emperor and was delegated, therefore, because he was under the emperor's authority. When the centurion spoke, he spoke with the emperor's authority, and so his command was obeyed. This self-understanding the centurion applied to Jesus Precisely because Jesus was under God's authority, he was vested with God's authority. So that when Jesus spoke, God spoke. To defy Jesus was to defy God. And Jesus' word must therefore be vested with God's authority that is able to heal sickness. This is what must, end quote, this is must, what must have been the man's thinking in it in a manner of speaking. You are under God's authority. He must know something of Jesus' claims and accepts them. And if you speak, you speak for God. And God owns everything and is the Creator. So surely if you speak, my servant can be healed, even from right here. 
The greatness of this man's faith was not merely, though, that he believed Jesus could heal or even that Jesus could heal from a distance, but it was in the degree to which he had understood that Jesus spoke with God's authority and as God. What limits would there be then to what you think Jesus can do? None. And so was this man's faith. In linking faith to the matter of Jesus' authority, as this man had done, we see how the stories of healing carry forward the theme found at the end of chapter 7, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And so, all through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught with authority, and now he's healing with that authority as well. This is the very authority of God. This is God, the Messiah, the divine deliverer, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. This is God in the flesh. And so we read verse 13, And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And a report must have come as he's coming home or as he arrives home, and he pieces it together and a word gets back to the apostles and Matthew somehow. The man was healed. The servant was healed at the moment Jesus said that. They pieced together. Remarkable. The centurion saw in Jesus' authority the solution to his anguish, need, and came to him the eyes of faith. It's a microcosm, isn't it, of what people have been doing through the centuries by God's grace. By God's grace, they perceive their need and recognize in Jesus the sole voice of authority that can meet their need, and they come to Him in faith, and they trust Him with their greatest need. The third Miracle, third point today of three, Peter's mother-in-law, verses 14 to 17. So the third miracle story in this section of Matthew is, is this healing of Peter's mother-in-law joined to the healing of many, uh, many, many, apparently, demon-possessed and other sick people at this time. Of course, remember, they're following him. People are bringing him, Matthew has reported, from all of, from all of Syria. It lets us know, as an unrelated a point. It's just kind of an aside. I don't need to take a shot at, um, at our Roman Catholic friends. We'll let Charles Spurgeon do that. Here, quote, Peter had a wife. Let the so-called successors of Peter remember that fact, end quote. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. 14 and 15, verses 14 and 15, look there. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw, Jesus saw Peter's mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and then this immediacy again. Not, not just because it immediately left her, but she's completely restored to health. Look at she, And she rose and began to serve him. It wasn't this gradual like, whew, and then, 
I'm going to need a couple days. That was a rough one. Give me, a, give, me a, uh, give me the evening. I'm not feeling so hot, but I feel better. No, it's just, it's just she's, she's restored, like, perfectly. At least the, whatever, 75% that she was functioning at before, as we say, as we get older. How are you doing? Uh, feeling pretty good. 100% of my usual 60%, <laughs> something like that. Uh, I suppose that was the case with her, too. I imagine a hip still aches and whatever. But So his mother-in-law's fever, uh, they, you know, people make their conjectures, maybe malarial. But whatever the case, we see here even, even now that fever itself is considered a disease. It has a, come down with a fever, not a symptom at the time. It was forbidden then to touch persons with many kinds of fever, but Jesus, again, heals with a touch. He's, he never fears getting um, sick <laughs> by touching a leper or a, someone with the fever. As in verse 3, the touch did not defile the healer, but healed the defiled. And again, it was effective, instantaneous. And so we can see and we can compile up as good readers that whether it's the wind and the waves or human cells and blood vessels or whatever else in all creation, Jesus' authority, His authoritative word, His, his even thought or will instantly accomplishes what, what He wants to have happen in His world. And what a thing to note and remember, always remember who He is. Matthew has shown that Jesus teaches and preaches with authority and that he also healed people with ease. Again, no, no book of incantations, no wand, none of this uh, Wanda stuff, you know. Not, he doesn't need to do any of that. Just, just instantaneous with God's power. And authority in fulfillment of the Bible's prophecies concerning the coming of this one, the Messiah, the Savior. And so 16 and 17, verses 16 and 17, that evening, kind of a summary statement, which, by the way, is just a reminder that, that Matthew very much selected three for us here, and now this summary statement, because it was much more, there was much more going on. He's, he's doing all sorts of things. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, he, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This, verse 17, was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now we have a little work to do before we finish on that. That Last quote there. He took our illnesses and bore our disease. What's that from? That's from Isaiah 52 and 53, the famous text about the suffering servant, the fourth servant song as it's called, which on the face of it, and the thing we most often emphasize, is that it's a passage which seems to present the servant as a sacrifice substituted that others might be spared. In the New Testament, to affirm that, 
this servant song is constantly linked to Jesus' death on the cross. Matthew does it too. But here in chapter 8, apparently, Matthew is saying that it's Jesus' healing ministry, not his atoning death, which is the way he, quote, took our illnesses and bore our diseases. That's worth thinking about for a minute and nailing down a bit. In fact, the point of connection is profound. Remember Matthew writing on this side of the cross too. We're on this side of the cross, so was he at the time of his writing. Well, both Scripture and Jewish tradition understood that all sickness, we do too. At least I would hope you believe this. That all sickness is caused directly or indirectly by sin. While it's true that some illnesses are caused by specific sins, the self-inflicted variety, it's also true that so much of the sickness in this world reflects the fact that all of us just simply live this side of the fall, under the curse, limited by mortality, and what sin has done to our world and our, and our bodies. And so while maybe not directly because of a specific sin, all suffering and sickness is a result of sin indirectly at least. And some things are self-inflicted. Yes, that's true. Such sickness will plague us until the consummation of the kingdom. In this larger sense, though, sickness is still connected with sin. But the connection is indirect and finally remedied only by Jesus coming back at the end of the age and doing away with all of this. Matthew, after all, understands that Jesus came to save his people from their sin. He emphasizes that point in his first chapter, the angels speak. And it's Jesus' death that inaugurates the new covenant, which deals so effectively with sin. But the ultimate undoing of sin will result in the doing away with illness. In the consummated kingdom, as we have seen, there will be no more suffering of any sort as the prophets themselves anticipated. And so, when Isaiah 53 tells us that the servant bears our sicknesses, our infirmities, and carries our sicknesses, it is the context of the servant song as well as the understood connection between sin and suffering that show us that the way the servant bears the sicknesses of others is through his suffering and death by which he deals principally with both sin and suffering. That is to say, all of the consequences of sin. All of them, eventually. Matthew understands that Jesus' healing miracles were not simply acts of power and authority. And they were that. They are wonderfully that. But that they were performed as a function of Jesus' atoning death yet to come. Because even within Jesus' ministry, before the cross, the kingdom was being inaugurated and demonstrated 
and expanding, as it were. It was appropriate that healings then and exorcisms should be performed in anticipation of the great day when all sickness and all demonic power would be forever removed from God's people. But because all such benefits stem from Jesus' atoning death, paid for by Jesus' death on the cross, those same healings can be understood to point beyond the authority of Jesus. As important as that is to say, they point beyond the authority of Jesus to the cross of Jesus. Matthew knows all of this. Writing again on this side of the cross and resurrection. So when Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law, the centurion's servant, the leper going back to the first, and all the others, he did so not merely out of the abundance of power rightly his, but because he was to absorb in his own person, in his own act as a willing atoning sacrifice, the lamb without spot, the sin bound up with suffering and sin and all the consequences of sin. Think Romans 8 here and the expansive effect of sin that even the earth groans in waiting for this restoration. Precisely because the healings were done in anticipation of Calvary, they fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. In other words, it's him. He's him, as the kids say these days, if I can be that guy. Hey, kids. <laughs> this is him, the Savior. He will save his people from their sins, and one day when he returns, so promises miracles during his ministry, he will do away with all sin and all the consequences of sin, all sickness and death itself forever for you, believer, and for God's glory. So apart from Jesus Christ, then we must say, humans are spiritually sick, dead, like that leper was considered dead. We are actually spiritually dead apart from Christ. We need a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior, and His authority to heal is proof of it. There is no other Savior because no other speaks or heals with such power and authority. And then there's the, the cross and the resurrection. Who, who else is like this? There is no one. And lastly, then, we must say faith is necessary. How could you, how could you look at the leper story or the, the centurion story and not see that we must come to Jesus trusting who He is, trusting in Him as who He is and what He offers, what He brings. You must come to Him. We must believe. We must come to Christ, trusting that He is who He says He is and can do what the Bible says He can do and has accomplished for His people. We must come to Him with the same kind of faith, believing that He's the only Savior, the only help for the lost sinner. May that be true for you. May you, as a professing believer already, take great comfort in this. And praise God for this. And if this is not true for you, may you do it today. May you come to Him today, recognizing that He's a great Savior, perfectly fitted for your need, a great sinner.
God has provided an all-authoritative, all-powerful Savior, and He is Christ the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for showing us your son and sending him to us, for us. May we honor you in the, in the right dividing of truth, cutting a straight path and lifting high all that you proclaim in your word. We thank you for that word as it is the very word of God. The word about the Word made flesh, the very words of salvation, because they describe for us Jesus, His teaching, His miracles, but all the more importantly, His cross and His resurrection. Father, we thank You for saving sinners, for the good news, and may You apply it to us in furthering degrees and continue to save in our midst and through our sharing and proclaiming of the gospel itself. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.